Hello everyone, it's February 14th, 2023. Happy Valentine's Day. So hopefully the only breakup you'll hear about today is that of Cosmos 2499, a Russian snooper sat that had a debris event, and it wasn't the only one. Also, we gotta talk about Super Heavy's static fire. No breakup there, thankfully, so let's get the show up and lift off. And we've got the Tower Welcome Cup episode 396 of the Open Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. How was your guys' laser week? I think that's how you said it last week, except you said balloon. Yeah, um, balloons. <laughs> what what was the laser week? What what lasers happened this week? Oh, you haven't I was heard still about that? I was still caught up on balloon news. You haven't heard about the um supposedly probably actually Chinese uh, satellite that was shooting lasers down at Hawaii. You can actually see them. It was a carbon dioxide monitoring satellite. I'm guessing that it's just normally this wouldn't make the news except for, you know, because of recent events and also where it happened. I don't know this, but normally I don't think it would be visible except that this was monitored, I believe, from the top of Mount Akea and you have like very mm-hmm. good conditions and so you can actually see it. Um, but normally it wouldn't be visible to the naked eye. Yeah. So ISAT 2 was initially thought to be the culprit because they got a topographic laser on there. But then uh, the National Astronomical Observatory Japan, who posted this video, evidently, um, since you know they had their astronomers going up there, said the most likely candidate was a yeah Chinese Datsun one AEMS satellite launched last year. Oh, I kind of remember vaguely AEMS, but uh, used to track nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and ozone as well as carbon dioxide. So this wasn't ISAT too. Mm-mm. But no, David, this is wild. I had I had not heard about this at all. Like not on oh, really? Twitter, okay. not not on any anything. Yeah, that's odd because I feel like it's been almost just as big news as uh you know the stupid balloon. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, we say this stupid balloon, but now it's balloons over forty countries. This last week, the U.S. shot down another balloon mm-hmm. and an unidentified flight, like a UFO like an unidentified vehicle that they have refused to say who was flying it or what kind of vehicle it was. I mean, they know what it is. We just don't know. Um, and then the the debris analysis turns out, yeah, they shot it down over really shallow water. So they were able to get like scoop stuff up off the ocean surface. And now they're diving, looking for the rest of it, but they've got, you know, some cabling and stuff. And uh, they did some analysis this week and they, we're talking about the the some of the capabilities of the vehicle, and it's just like, yeah, it's a standard like a spy satellite. Like it's it sounds like it's mostly SIGINT, but like it, there's there's nothing exciting about this. Like con- countries do this all the time. Mm. Like can we please stop freaking out about this? And, and why are we shooting down more things? And just like everybody chill. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of weird stuff that like we as in humanity does that is very niche and like people are like experts in it and do it as part of their careers and jobs and then when the public finds out and they yeah they just kind of go <laughs> get really really riled up and excited and like what is going on this is madness and it's like yeah yeah exactly just i am yeah, just basically just saying what you said then but it's it's kind of mm-hmm. just funny to think about it because it's like those people that have that niche expertise are just like oh man it's my time to shine i guess you know <laughs> <laughs> pun possibly intended in terms of the lasers but oh like, my yeah. my tuesday morning is interesting now. Okay, cool. <laughs> Cosmos 2499 breakup. Well, I guess we're not entirely done with conspiracies, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what have you got, Dennis? Yeah, I mean, uh, like, I guess I would phrase it as we we have a good idea of what 
what its purpose is, even if it's still unofficial and speculation. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 classified. This is all this. This is more classified stuff. So mm-hmm. just like Magnum, I guess got to give that caveat at the beginning. But I guess we'll talk about it just without having to say, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. But it's, I, this is, I think, a really neat uh, situation. And so, Ben, I'm really happy you uh, caught this in the news because I had missed it entirely. So this is about, you know, this Cosmos 2499 spacecraft breaking up. And this spacecraft is part of a, uh, a series of Russian uh, inspector satellites or snoopers. And so they go and poke their nose around and <laughs> investigate other spacecraft. And it's a really interesting world uh, to read about these. And there's a blog I got really into last year called Sat Track Cam Leiden, where those first three are all one word. And it's a, um, a, uh, a Dutch uh, expert in uh, sky watching. What's his first name? I see his last name. Uh, Marco Langbroke. And uh, it's it's a really cool blog. But essentially, Cosmos 2499 is part of, well, was, okay. <laughs> was part of a, a, this, this grouping of, of, of inspector uh, satellites. And so we go back to 2013, okay? And the Russians had the, uh, the rocket launch vehicle. Um, which, funny enough, uh, doesn't seem to stand for rocket, but rather rumble or boom, it's translated as. And if I put rocket into Google Translate in English and then look for the Russian, there's a different word, I guess, for, for R-O-C-K-E-T, rocket. So in any event, these, these things were you know, being launched uh, a lot in the 90s. And uh, the first uh, of these mysterious things was Cosmos 2491. Okay, And so it was launched on a rocket in 2013 in December. Uh, to a 1,500 by 1,500 kilometer uh, highly inclined orbit, uh, inclination 82.4 degrees. And what made this a interesting, suspicious, mysterious, controversial rocket is that it was launched with three normal uh, Rodnik, uh, aka Strela, payloads. Um, these are just part of a you know Russian constellation for weather monitoring or uh, Earth observation or something. Communications, who knows? But th- those are kind of standard ones. But once you know those three payloads were launched, shortly after, observers noticed a fourth object. And so just going through the math, that's what became 2491. Okay, so now let's go one year later. You know, let's go to May 2014. Now you've got another rocket launch. And this one is sent to a 1,200 by 1,500 kilometer orbit with, again, an inclination of 82.4 degrees. And there was a launch with three normal Rod and Estrella payloads. And shortly after, observers noticed a fourth object. <laughs> and that became Cosmos 2499. So apparently, they were sneaking these fourth spacecraft onto these you know, triplets of uh, Rodniks that they were launching. Um, and then they did it a third time, uh, Cosmos 2504. And the idea is that these... These little guys that were launched were the reason they think they were snoopers is that they would basically do maneuvers near the breeze upper stage uh, that would set them up there. And so to kind of get an estimate of like the size and shape of them, um, one time five years earlier, I think, like in 2008, uh, a rocket launched three Rodnik slash Strellas, and it included a fourth payload uh, that was a little kind of 50-some kilogram, you know, 100-ish pounds uh, sitting on top. And it was just a um, education satellite. I think it was marking like the 50th anniversary of uh, Sputnik or something. And so 
since that's an easy way to fit a small little guy on top of three Revniks, that's why they think that these these inspector sets 2491 and 2499 were, you know, about the same size, 50 kilograms, and they were going along for the ride. And so they were doing rendezvous and proximity ops with their Breeze upper stage. And, you know, that's one thing. Now we flash forward to last year, last summer in August, a Soyuz 21V with a Volga upper stage. And so a 21V is when they don't have the side boosters and it doesn't even look like a Soyuz anymore. That sent, uh, basically, there was no more mystery behind this inspector set. This was Cosmos 2558, and it was sent to sun-synchronous orbit, and it's been stalking USA 326 ever since. So if you remember the news about, like, if you're vaguely recollecting, or maybe you just remember straight up, you know, hearing about some Russian spacecraft that was messing with an American one semi-recently, that was this one, probably, uh, 2558. And in that case, they just... You know, this is different from these earlier ones where it was, you know, doing RPO with an American well-known uh, spy satellite. This lineage of these spacecraft in the last, uh, you know, 10 years uh, have continued to this day, evidently. Sorry, what, what does RPO stand for? Sorry, Rendezvous and Proximity Operations. Pro okay, gotcha. Thank you. Sorry. And so um, we have, you know, of course, uh, our own... Uh, snoopers as well there's uh, i think pan nemesis they've got these names they often write like so many of these you know nro and dod things they have multiple names for the same thing before but uh, uh prowler is probably our best known uh snooper satellite and that was one that was sent to geo back in the shuttle era and so uh very cool kind of speculations about what that thing was and so anyway back to cosmos 2499 right on paper it's it's nominally a Hall effect thruster test, right? So maybe these earlier ones that were sent on rockets in the 90s or rockets in the 90s, maybe they really are like not inspector sats. Because after all, they did their proximity operations around their own upper stage. And so maybe that was to test these Hall effect thrusters. Or maybe not, because this recent 2558 is obviously spying on USA 326. What's kind of wild though, is that the first one, 2491, had its had a debris event in 2019. Okay, whether it just exploded or collided with something, it it done became a bunch of pieces uh, in 2019. And the news, which I still, I guess, technically haven't gotten to, is 2499. The second one that was launched has just broken up. It sounds like, if I'm reading things correctly, in December of 21 there was a debris event that resulted in 18 pieces. So maybe it started to leak or, you know, started to bust apart. But then on January 4th of this year, 2023, so uh, a little over a month earlier than this recording, it had evidently broken to 85 pieces. And so that's, you know, a lot of pieces to be there. And of course, when that happens, they're given energy and they go into different orbits than the original. And so that's something for highly inclined you know, spacecraft to have to particularly look out for or anything at those kind of higher altitudes. And so, yeah, that's kind of the news there. As far as the breakup's concerned, um, it's not good, <laughs> obviously, when that happens. Um, there's, you know, there's a number of these uh, debris events that happen, it seems, every couple of years. Uh, there was an Olage motor that recently went. Um, an Orbcom satellite had a breakup, but um, it's never any good. And the fact that this was potentially a uh, an inspector spying sat test bed that did it, you know, makes it a little uh, less pleasant. And so in any event, I guess, you know, Cosmos 2504, 
which is thought to be the third in the series because after all, it flew you know one year after the other 2499 flew and it had three Rodnick Strela payloads and after, shortly after launch, observers noticed a fourth object. So that one's still up there and it's still active and who knows, uh, maybe we're going to have a debris event we'll talk about next year about 2504 <laughs> blowing up because there seems to be a pattern happening. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so ju just for the timeline, the the big disintegration, the 85 debris uh, event happened back in January. And the, the news now is that uh, 18th SDS, the 18th Space Defense Squadron, confirmed that that's what happened this week. It is, we're, we're talking about them confirming it, I guess, right? It was, there wasn't anything else that, that happened that's new, right? Right. Yes. Thanks okay. for clarifying that. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. there's so many things on orbit and... I guess yeah. keeping track of what's what, especially when a debris event happens, can be a little non-trivial. Well, and, you know, deciding to confirm to the public uh, can also take a little bit. Obviously, we're we're totally outside of, of any uh, justified speculation at this point. But, like, what, what do you think might be happening? Do you think that they're destroying them so that they, because they're, they're done testing them and instead of deorbiting them, where they might, you know, I don't know have pieces hit the ground, they're deciding to blow them up in orbit so that they deorbit over a longer period of time, but there are smaller pieces that can't be studied? Or do you think that they're doing some sort of interception? Or do you think it's a malfunction? You know, batteries blowing up? Like, what, what do you think is going on? I definitely have my theory. What do you think, David? Well, I hadn't even thought about intentionally breaking them up, or at least for that reason, which is the only valid reason I can think of. I don't know. I mean, if it happened once, my first thought would be, you know, just something went wrong. Something exploded that happens on satellites, you know, mm -hmm. but then it happened again. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. You think I, that just, that's probably not a coincidence. Huh? I think, yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence, but I don't think it's intentional either. I think there's a design flaw and it happens to have a, a shelf life of, what would this be? Six-ish, seven, eight years or so, right? And that design flaw has managed to knock out the two of them, and there's one more. And so that's why I'm going to estimate within the next three or four years, uh, we'll get that final one to pop. Because after all, when it comes to design flaws potentially causing um, explosive events on Russian spacecraft, I think of the short and sweet we'll talk about later and how MS-21, oh, okay. <laughs> or sorry, MS-22, right? I was always a little skeptical about it being micrometeoroid because I, I did the math. Roughly, I estimated it'd be about 1% of the year is a spacewalk actually happening. And so that'd be a one in 100 chance just by pure randomness of a meteorite impact happening during the, the spacewalk. And, and the, the fact same that, system. The same, same system. Component. Exactly. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. So, so I mean, that was, that was just when we had the one data point. Now that it's happened twice, forget about it. I, I don't yeah. think, I think it really is just, again, a design flaw that yeah. we'll probably get to learn interesting things. And so that's, I think we could actually tie that, what's making these pop to what's causing, you know, so used to have coolant leaks on orbit right now. So the, the only and counterpoint. Totally unfounded, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the timing is pretty close. Six years and then eight years, like, for, you know, a design flaw, that's that's basically the same day, right? Mm -hmm. um, but one counterpoint is 2558 was launched after 2491 had its debris event. So if it's a design flaw, either 2558 isn't gonna, uh, isn't gonna blow up, 
or they weren't able to get down to the root cause. Well, this might be, I think this is something, I think I might have conflated things because there's sort of two sets of spacecraft in a sense, right? There's four snoopers that I've been talking about from Russia. Three of them are part of a series. And then 2558 launched last year, who knows what that thing looks like or is doing. So that might be a totally different design and model. Oh, yeah. No, and, no you're right. I, 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 And it's a different orbital regime too, right? So I think, yeah, 2558 yeah, SSO. Right, is SSO. But um, right, is there a third in the 21, 2491, 2499 line? I made things misleading. <laughs> we, had, we There was a trio of spacecraft and then a fourth one. And I talked about the first two in the trio and the fourth one as though they were the trio. Yeah, cool. I mean, it... I wish that we knew more, but like it's kind of fun to watch things happening even if they're inside a black box. Okay. So let's translate on over to a super heavy static fire. So this probably made, I guess, maybe the most news this week, perhaps. The super heavy static fire, uh, I mean, there's not a whole lot of technical stuff to talk about, but I thought it'd be kind of fun to go over it really quick uh, since we don't talk about super heavy or Starship too often, although I'm sure we will hopefully in the next couple months. And that's the idea here. Um, and I have to say this test kind of left me wondering, well, is the launch going to happen next month or not? Because the idea was that if this test were successful, then the launch would happen sometime in March. And it seems to have been successful, but maybe with a couple of little qualifiers. So basically the Starship has like 33 engines and there were 31 of them that fired. Uh, there was one that was turned off manually before launch. And then there was one that just stopped itself. The full duration was about five seconds, approximately. I don't know if it, if it was exactly five seconds, um, but it did make the full burn. Uh, who said, who called five seconds full duration? So like, obviously full duration means full planned duration, i.e. no early shutdown. But like full duration in the context of a static fire to me says, you know, the the two minutes or the, you know, minute and whatever to get up to Mm. where it would normally shut down and separate. So I just, I wanted to simulating. Yeah. Yeah. Mike in the chat says that Elon said this, um, and he sure isn't known for being a clear communicator, uh, with his terms. Uh, so, okay. That, that, that makes sense. So the test lasted for the expected length of time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go ahead and, and do that edit <laughs> for them. And also, according to Musk, uh, this could have reached orbit with just uh, the 31 engines because obviously it's capable of the engine out capability. That was redundant. Um, mm-hmm. um, I think the cool thing to mention was just that like, really this static fire set some records or possibly – well, it set some and might have set some others, but we're not sure um, because um, the one thing that's not known is what level of thrust this static fire was done at. It almost certainly was not full thrust, and apparently that's for reasons just um, the test stand wouldn't have fared too well. Yeah, that's what that's what I was going to say. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting though, isn't it? That like you have a test stand and you can't even really crank the engines up. You can't test them on the ground, but apparently they're going to be testing them or they're going to be launching off of a pad, and that'll be capable of withstanding liftoff. So it, this is a lot of rock to hold in one place in it. <laughs> Mater- <laughs> material science kind of a box at, at this much energy in one place. Yeah. The booster fired 31 engines, like I said, and the previous record was held by the N1, um, which had fired uh, just 30. So it beat it by one engine. It actually broke the record. That's really cool. For number of engines fired. Now, as far as total thrust, uh, that's something we don't know. With uh, the 31 engines it would have, it would have had to fire at like 64% of its full thrust. And and is that record held by N1? 
the most thrust on a static fire? Yeah, correct. Okay. Yes. It did beat the Saturn V. I think like even at its lowest throttle, it would still have beat the Saturn V, which just gives you an idea of how much power mm. that thing has. But yeah, apparently Tom Mueller claims that it did break that record. Now, I don't think he's currently involved with this, right? Um, I don't remember, but um, from what I read, he's not, but he seems to you know, be still in contact with people there at the site. And so what he says is probably reliable. So he says that it did break the M1 thrust record, um, but I guess we won't know until we find out for sure. Yeah, just go into Wikipedia you know, just naively looking at what they say the maximum thrust of the first stage of the N2 rocket is, 10,200,000 pounds force. Now, is that the N1 you mean? Because you said N2. I did say N2, didn't I? Yeah, that's a lot of thrust. But uh, yeah, and so the test stand, as um, as we were saying, was closely monitored for damage. And um, according to Gwen Shotwell, and this was actually in reference to the launch pad uh, at the recent, uh, there was a conference. I don't remember what the conference was. This is like last week. Uh, she had said that uh, the real goal is to not blow up the launch pad. And I thought that was interesting because that's in reference to the orbital launch. So that must be the case for this test, right? Although this is not a you know full thrust, but um, it seems that like this is like a real issue. It's not so much the launch vehicle, but just how are you going to get it off of the earth without destroying the earth underneath it. Um, If, you know, that's just their big goal is to just simply not, you know, destroy the pad during the orbital test. I mean, now obviously she's being a Mm -hmm. bit facetious there, but still. Obviously you tow it out to sea, then you let it tip over, (laughs) then you launch. You tow it out to sea, you fill it up with air so it can float. Yeah. And notably it's blow up and not melt. So I I would be really surprised if they weren't sure about about their ability to actually get up to full thrust and lift off without Mm. just disintegrate especially because like they want right they're going to be landing eventually they're going to be landing super heavy on the same structure not a separate structure right they're landing back at the at the same chopsticks will grab it yeah oh oh right they're landing right the chopsticks are grabbing it that's right not not landing on the launch clamps launch launch clamps if they can actually do this, I mean, it's it's super, super ambitious, but like <laughs> this would be a really cool launch system when it works. It sounds like it's it's somewhat challenging and understandably so to really know exactly what this, what a new vehicle, especially a very powerful one is going to yeah. do to your launch pad. Because right, Artemis 1 blew open elevator doors and damaged the pad in some other kind of ways. <laughs> uh, and also, Ben, I thought, and I don't know if this is what you're saying, but you made an interesting distinction, which I didn't make, is that she said blow up and not melt, which means to me that, yeah, that maybe the concern isn't so much melting the launch pad, but just that something goes wrong and the whole vehicle just blows up and that's <laughs> right. what takes the launch pad out. Yeah. So yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. I thought she was talking about a nominal launch and they still managed to you know blow up or melt the launch pad in this case. But I think I think it is totally reasonable to think that that they might not be able to do a full duration static fire. Like that that might just not be something that, you know, modern infrastructure can handle. So I was going to say the th- the the amount of thrust that it must put on the hold downs is, is record setting. Yeah, it's something like twenty clamps that hold it down. But I don't know if it's really that that's the problem. It's just the heat involved. I would think that that would be the issue. I mean, the amount of thrust it generates is a lot too. <laughs> I don't know. There's all kinds of concerns. Yeah, concerns. Uh, Deathkin in the chat says you can't fire the real SRBs on SLS or STS on this test stand either, but no one seems to mind that. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> it, it's it's not that this is like a, a failing that 
is going to keep anybody from doing anything. But also, yeah, to that end, speaking of um, preserving the launch pad, um, there have been some pipes and tanks that have been shipped from Kennedy Space Center, which would seem to indicate that a, a water suppression system or I guess like a deluge system is being installed. Perhaps not a water suppression because that's for sound, right? Which I imagine the acoustic damage is also a concern. So mm -hmm. maybe it's for that reason too. Uh. But apparently there's no real confirmation that that's what these pipes and tanks are for. But it, that seems to be the case. So I guess they're going to be addressing that with uh, some water, which totally is a good idea. I mean, that's a great idea. I, I'm surprised that – or I would be surprised if there was no water involved and that they're just launching off the pad dry yeah. like that. Yeah, no. Uh -huh. Finally, so like, what does this mean for the FAA and their licensing of this launch? Um, so they might require all 33 Raptors to be operational during the test and then they can launch. Or maybe, you know, they say, okay, you can launch, but if you don't have all 33 engines up, then uh, you have to abort the launch. And so that seems to be maybe the condition SpaceX might have to abide by um, if they don't want to do another static fire. But then again, maybe they do for reasons that we don't know about because we don't know ex exactly why those two engines went out. And, um, and we just don't know much of the data in general, but it seems to have been successful. And uh, here's hoping next month we see an orbital test flight. That'll be something else. So let's do three short and sweet this week. Ben, what's the first? Progress MS-21 has sprung a leak. So after Soyuz MS-22 sprung a coolant leak back in December, NASA and Roscosmos have decided to send up an empty Soyuz to station uh, at the end of February, at the end of this month, as a replacement for it. Whether or not the coolant leak was due to an MMOD strike has now been called into doubt as Progress MS-21 this week also sprung a leak in the same system. The leak is not expected to interfere with MS-21 scheduled deorbit this week, and Krikalev, the executive director of human spaceflight, says that they have double and triple checked the replacement Soyuz MS-23 just to make sure. Next up, Spaceport Camden saga continues. While Camden County commissioners have been seeking to establish a spaceport on the Georgia coast just north of Jacksonville, spending $11 million over the past decade, the community voted overwhelmingly in a referendum last spring to cancel the project. The commissioners responded with a legal challenge, arguing that the state constitution doesn't allow citizens to veto decisions of county governments. Now, the highest court in Georgia has upheld the referendum, strongly disagreeing with the commissioners. This may be the final blow for the troubled spaceport Camden project, but given the number of twists and turns so far, we may have to wait and see. And finally, Kuiper gets conditional approval. The FCC approved Amazon's plan to deploy 3,236 Kuiper satellites in LEO. The approval was granted on the condition that Project Kuiper adhere to an updated debris mitigation plan. This plan includes semi-annual reports to the FCC about collision avoidance maneuvers that any satellites have made as well as assurance that satellites will be deorbited once their seven-year mission life has elapsed. Kuiper is also required to provide updates on efforts to avoid interference with astronomical observations and spacecraft launch operations with tight launch windows. So moving on to this weekend's spaceflight history then, we have four winners. Uh, we have Uncle Willie, Cy Kyle, the Greek, and Moritz. And I guess they all get bonus points as well. So the clue was more computers, more beds. And uh, that one stumped me. So looking at the notes now, I totally see what it is. Makes sense. Uh, and I guess, Dennis, take it from there <laughs> for this clue that, that was a little bit more obvious than um, I thought it was. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I couldn't come up with anything clever. Uh, and so I just kind of brute forced it. Uh, and so the event is the is February 20th, 1986, the launch of Mir Core Module, uh, a.k.a. the base block. And so I, I typically like to call it the base block. 
Um, I don't know. It just sounds more fun to say that to me. So <laughs> in any event, the launch itself, uh, I kind of, even though that's the event, I guess I'll just talk a little bit more about the core module and its interactions with the rest of Mir because the launch, as far as I can tell, kind of just went off fine. Um, there wasn't really much, uh, that I was finding to say about it. And so uh, it was launched on a Proton K, which was a uh, an earlier iteration of the Proton, which uh, for most of the Proton's life, it launched as a Proton K from 1967 to 2012. And uh, this is after a series of the seven Salyuts space stations. And uh, Mir was a lot like uh, uh, Salyut 6 and 7. So people, you know, Western observers were thinking, okay, we got Salyut 8, that's uh, going to be on orbit. But uh, no, then they, they learned that its name was actually Mir, which could be translated as uh, peace, um, as well as, I believe, world um, or harmony. There's there's a couple of different kind of ways you can uh, translate it. And so uh, in any event, yeah, this was going to be the first, uh, you know, proper modular style space station uh, on orbit where you were going to have a lot more than just, you know, as many as I think two modules, uh, if you had a spacecraft docking to some of these other ones. And so, yeah. So it's also sometimes uh, called, it has the other designation, uh, DOS-7, which has uh, which is a Russian acronym, but mercifully translates uh, to the same letters in English as a durable orbital station. And so uh, these DOSs, you sometimes see uh, showing up with the earlier Salyuts. So Salyut-1 was DOS-1, Salyut-4 was DOS-4. Salyut 6 was DOS 5, and Salyut 7 was DOS 6. So there was a bit of a, a gap there, uh, and that's because two of them uh, failed. Uh, DOS 2 just totally didn't reach orbit and re-entered on, you know, right away. And uh, DOS 3 limped to orbit and managed to survive 11 days before deorbiting. So rather than giving it a proper Salyut uh, designation uh, or name, it was just called Cosmos 557 and kind of swept under the rug. And... If you're wondering uh, and unfamiliar with uh, the the Salyut program all that much, the ones that were missing from that list, Salyut 2 and Salyut 3 and Salyut 5, those were actually Almaz military stations. And they had a different naming convention, OPS-1, OPS-2, etc. And uh, those were military ones that were launched under the guise of being part of the Salyut program. But in any event, back to base block. Uh, this is a 20.4 ton module, so it's a it's a big boy. Um, it's 13.13 meters long with uh, 4.15 meters maximum diameter and 90 cubic meters of habitable volume. Uh, for comparison, uh, the ISS has 388 cubic meters of habitable volume or pressurized volume, while Mir, Mir in its ultimate configuration, when it had all its modules attached, was 350, and a uh, crew dragon is 9.3. And so uh, really, though, if you want to visualize this, like I said, it was based on Salyut 6 and 7. And so this base block really just looks like Zvezda right? Uh, also called the service module or SM, right? And so that's the module sitting at the, the far aft end of the space station, right? It's, it's, it's the brains of it. And uh, yeah, and, and so this one, if, if you know what Zvezda looks like, you know what base block looks like and vice versa. And so at, at, at its front, it's got, you know, its node module, the little bubble uh, with some uh, docking and berthing ports on there. And then it has a, you know, the cylindrical section beyond that, which then grows into an even wider cylindrical section that reaches then the base, uh, the far end of the spacecraft. And so that's where kind of the the far 
rear of the ISSs at the aft end of Zvezda, and that's where the propulsion is and all that stuff. Like I said, the, the docking node at the front end uh, had both radial and lateral ports, unlike Salyut 6 and 7, which only had the, uh, the radial, or sorry, uh, the axial part, uh, port running along the main axis. Again, to tell you, like, to use Zvezda as an analogy, the radial, sorry, the axial port of Zvezda is attached to Zarya right now. So running along the main axis uh, of station. And the radial ports are, you know, where now Nauka and Poisk and previously Piers were connected to Zvezda. So that was cool. And kind of the big thing about making this a modular station was having these radial ports uh, available. Um, it had three solar panels sticking out, which is a pretty cool thing. Uh, it had two originally, but then an EVA installed a third one. And so they weren't, uh, you know, 120 degrees around, you know, from each other. They were still separated by 90 degrees. So it's kind of like four quadrants where each one has a solar panel sticking out and then one of them just doesn't have anything. So kind of a kind of different design look than you typically have, where you would have the kind of symmetric wings of solar panels sticking out of spacecraft. And inside uh, on the nadir facing uh, side, there was a scientific airlock, which uh, I haven't seen this confirmed, but just by looking at schematics, this looks ballpark where Zvezda's uh, window is. And so I don't know if you've seen Zvezda, Zvezda service module has actually a, a nadir facing window uh, on board, which is pretty cool. And um, yeah, and as for the clue itself, uh, it was an upgrade uh, with more computers and more beds. And so the beds were kayukas, which were these little kind of cabins that the uh, cosmonauts uh, could, you know, hang out in, have their personal space in there. They had windows. That was very nice. And so a very nice step up. And um, as far as computers go, uh, there was one computer on Salyut 7 and there were seven computers on Mir. Samir so was right, intended to be the core of a much more expansive, yeah, much more expansive station. The building up of Mir itself was interesting. And actually, there's a couple callbacks to things we've talked about on the show before. So we had done uh, Soyuz T-15 uh, as a Twisif uh, previously, and that was the first crew of Mir. These were the one, this was the crew that did the only interstation travel during a mission. And so they docked to Mir hung out there, went back to Salyut 7 to go grab some stuff and then redocked to Mir and then went back home, if you remember that mission, which is pretty well, awesome I, that people yes, did that. Yes, I totally remember it because it is so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it is so cool. Yeah. Well worth yeah. mentioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and so as far as right docking to so, – so, so I mentioned right that Mir has the uh, – or the base block has these uh, – uh, radial ports as well as the axial ports. The axial ports are the docking ones and the radial ports or lateral ports are the uh, berthing ones. And so, right, so these early missions would just, you know, go and dock uh, along the uh, the axial port. Now, to go and build up Mir, it just looks kind of like a big cluster if you just look at it and don't pay attention, but it actually has a very straightforward logic to the the way the station's built. And it's really cool, I think, to think about the the sort of con ops for how they added the modules and dealt with this sort of thing. The first module to arrive was Kavant 1, uh, which stands for Quantum 1. Uh, I guess, right, quantum meaning a discretized unit, a discrete unit. And so maybe each module, you know, is a, is a quantum. So that, that works. So Kavant 1 is kind of different 
I mean, all the modules are unique, but it's much more unique than the other ones, where the other ones are just a bunch of Zarya's pretty much. I shouldn't say just a bunch of Zarya's, but just imagine Zarya's or FGB's. Those are what the other modules all kind of look like. So they're long and have that kind of tapered look, but they're more like Zarya than they are like Zvezda. Now, Kavant 1, though, is this shorter one, and it went and docked at the aft end of the base block, okay? So the equivalent of going at the aft end of Zvezda, where the propulsion sits. So obviously, base block wasn't going to be using that any of those thrusters if they had Kavant 1 parked right there, I'm assuming. So that one then made the new end of the station, and it had now the new axial port at its aft end. And so for the rest of this time, you know, that mirror existed, that was the two ways you could dock along those axial ports with an asterisk. <laughs> so after Kavant 1 comes Kavant 2. And this was going to be the first time that they were going to move a module over to one of these radial ports. And what I love about this and think is super cool is the way they did it was they used what I'd seen called a Liapa arm, and that's what the Wikipedia entry calls it. Uh, my understanding uh, is that it's a bastardization, though, of the actual Russian. And uh, Anatoly Zak uh, on Twitter, I remember uh, talking about the arms in a different context, a more modern one, uh, was uh, he, he had told somebody, you don't really want to call it a Liapa arm. Um, and so I don't know what else to call it. So I guess I'll just tell you that's what it is, L-Y-A-P-P-A, but I'll just refer to it as the arms. And so these arms, though, had a really neat way of transferring uh, the, the modules all around the spacecraft. So when Kavant 2 shows up, it has to dock along the axial, the, now the front axial port, right? And then once it docks there, it had a little arm on it, one of these arms, and it would grab a socket on the base block and then translate itself to one of the radial berthing ports and then park itself there. And that's what they did then for Crystal, which was the next module to come. It would go and dock at the docking port along the axis, and then its little arm would go and grab the base block's node and then move itself to another one of these berthing ports. And so that's essentially how this station was built up. And it should, if it sounds familiar to you, right, that's exactly how Tiangong got uh, Wenxian and Mengtian to dock with it, right? And we, we were looking at the arm and trying to, and like, you know, analyzing it and all this cool stuff. But yeah, that, you know, it, it was the same conops. It, 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 Mengtian and Wenxian, I got the order back, right? When Wenxian first came, it docked along the main axis of Tiangong, and then the arm went and moved it off to one of the radial ports. How did we miss that there was form for this? Like, I know. This, I don't... <laughs> this is so notable. Like, I, I'm kind of shocked that none of us knew this. Mm-hmm. How cool. Yep, I definitely, yeah. Because it was it was such a mind-blowing thing to, to get it in such a, uh, what's it, uh, a chronological uh, <laughs> Order. <laughs> um, although uh, Kavant 2, Crystal, Spectre, and Perota all had one of these arms. So I guess they moved themselves, whereas Wentian has an arm and it moves the incoming module. Yeah, I think that's right. That is a difference. Yeah, whether, yeah. Yeah, good, good, good call on that. Yeah, exactly. Each of these modules would bring the arm to it. The only reason why you have to pick one or the other, I think it starts to come down to the, the, diameter of these things so like I'll, there'll be a photo in the show notes of the uh the mirror one of the mirror arms this is actually a mock-up um at the uh training center that they have and 
you can see that the the radius of the module that has the arm, so the incoming module, um, the radius is much smaller. So it's like reaching up to grab sort of that ball-shaped uh, docking node uh, mm. ball thing. Um, whereas Wentian, it's it's pretty it's pretty big around, and so it can have an arm that's inside of its radius. Or like in inside that circumference and reach out and move things around, whereas these arms, it, it's probably better to have them on the small one and reach up to the big one. I don't know. I may, maybe there's another reason why the mechanics made enough sense to add all this mass, but really cool. Yeah. No. And yeah, if if I remember correctly, too, the the Tiangong arm seems to be able to like articulate in a way that this one doesn't seem to where it would kind of like it would mm-hmm. it would grab it and then would kind of like extend a bit and then rotate mm-hmm. and then retract in a way that at least it's not obvious since we've all kind of admitted none of us have, have ever seen this russian <laughs> arm <laughs> in motion before i don't know if it has a similar articulation we're just missing it but otherwise it seems to just be kind of swoop it around yeah and it kind of it kind of makes sense because those the russian Docking port is a probe and drogue, uh, like mm. a cone, and that's a lot easier. Like you can actually like retract that, and you're good, and you can have that clearance. Whereas with the Chinese um, docking ports, they're like a, a three blade, almost like an A pass system, mm-hmm. mm. and so that you probably have more interference unless you're doing it. I don't know if you're if you're just barely off axis, it might be okay. But yeah, anyway. Fair to say that there are more degrees of freedom on the on the newer arm. So yeah, so that so that's that's how Mir was built up. I mean, there's obviously a very rich and interesting uh, series of you know steps that had happened. But yeah, Spectre and Perota rounded out all the uh, the major modules, and there was only one last kind of mini semi module that was added on Crystal. It had actually two docking ports that were at the one end of the uh, uh, module, the far end, I guess, um, right? There's, I guess, the part that docked to base block. And then at the far end, there was an axial and a lateral ports there. And what that was designed for was uh, for Buran, right? The, you know, the Russian space hmm. shuttle, which obviously, right, it only flew one time uncrewed and never made it to Mir, but the idea was, well, we were going to have it come to Mir. And so when Crystal was being designed, that's how they were going to design it. Now, that didn't happen, but the shuttle Mir program did happen, which, you know, in the 90s was a really cool thing. And so the very first shuttle mission, the shuttle is is a big old spacecraft, and it couldn't just go and park itself at the tip end of Crystal. So what they needed to do was, presumably using the arms again, move Crystal back to the original uh, docking port along the main axis that it Hmm. first connected to. And then from there, the shuttle would dock on the axial port at the far end of Crystal. And and I know my engineering chops are not very good, but I have to assume all this axial docking is just because the loads, having them go in that direction is much easier. You got, you know, Hmm. 10 to 20 ton things that are docking. You don't want them to be coming in you know, and docking radially and potentially, you know, spinning your space station around. I'm assuming that's the reason why they want to do, or at least, sorry, that's the reason why they would design the axial ones to be mm. docking 
ports yeah. and the radial ones to just be berthing ports. That makes sense. But in the shuttle, or because I see here in a little schematic, it actually says the shuttle docking module, which was added in 1995. It's on a radial, you know, like you said, it's off the crystal mm-hmm. module. So I hadn't quite said that yet, but 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 that's 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 the cool thing though. Sorry, I'll let you finish your thought. So I was just thinking, if it was originally in, intended for Buran, that's about the same mass, right? I mean, maybe a little bit lighter. I don't know. But so exactly why would they want it there if, like you said, it should be axial? Because I, my guess was that maybe the shuttle just didn't have the clearance because there's a bunch of solar panels in the way or something. But you're saying that uh, it's for different reasons. But I don't understand why then it would be on a radial port or, you know, like docking in like, you know, a radial direction. Like, I just don't know why they put that there then in the first place. No, you're right. And I realized what I said came off confusing. When I said shuttle is a big spacecraft, I meant big in terms of size and not so much mass. Like, so yeah, it was a clearance issue. And so that's why for the very first, it wasn't the first shuttle mirror mission. The first shuttle mirror mission was the shuttle just getting close to an inspecting mirror and saying hi. But the first time that shuttle docked to mirror, they translated crystal to the base blocks axial port and then docked mm-hmm. shuttle there. So you'd make the clearance and all. And then for the later ones, they had moved back crystal to the radial berthing port, added a that last mini module I kind of mentioned before. That Docking module was then added at the end of Crystal, and then the shuttle would dock onto that for all the future shuttle mirror dockings. Oh, okay. So you're exactly right about it being a clearance issue, and I and I I made it unclear because I started talking about shuttle being in my head. I meant you know it was big in terms of extent, and that meant clearance. But then I immediately started talking about loads on the station, and so I can see <laughs> what you meant. <laughs> so you know that was you know how. The, the the base block or core module of Mir, it was launched this week, uh, all those years ago in 1986. And so what's the future of this uh, type of station? Well, uh, Nauka, which is also a, a, a FGB functional cargo block like Zarya, um, it has uh, the pre-chawl uh, node at its nadir end, right? And what's cool about that is that that has a bunch of these Russian arm sockets, and so who knows if there will ever be a, a Russian station or, you know, the ROSS, the Russian Orbital Service Station or ROS, I think I've seen Russian Orbital Station. Uh, who knows if that'll ever happen. But in the original kind of concept that was floated, depending on how far back you want to go for what original means, one of the early concepts was that Nauka, uh, that pre node would have uh, a power module uh, NEM uh, docked to it, and then they would leave the station and form the core of a new uh, station where Prechal would basically be acting as the base blocks node acted for Mir with the good old, you know, Russian uh, docking arms uh, birthing new modules to the different nodes on Prechal. So uh, very cool to see that, you know, this still exists. Um, it is actively, you know, used on one of the two space stations uh, orbiting the Earth, uh, Tiangong, and that it could potentially be used if there was ever a Russian orbital station. Uh, so yeah, so in, mm-hmm. in any event, that's uh, this week in spaceflight history. Did you guys know that when Kvant 2 went up, its uh, right solar array didn't, de- didn't deploy properly? Mm-mm. What they did, this was before it docked, while it was on its way to Mir, they actually initiated a roll maneuver to add centripetal motion, uh, and that was enough to let the array fully extend and lock. And man, it really sucks that Lucy's array 
the last little bit is an inward motion or otherwise they could just like <laughs> roll and de-roll and get it to slam shut. That's wild. Good to hear about Mir. Uh, always interesting. I'm sure we'll do more spaceflight history topics that have to do with it in the future. <laughs> so the date range for next week's clue is the 21st through the 27th of February. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? Yep. Uh, I'm going to reference the clue that I did three weeks ago, if anybody remembers that one. Uh, next week in 2009, the clue is nothing some whiteout can't fix. Um, whiteout for not for, I think, Brits is Tipex. Um, <laughs> I think the Australians might also use Tipex. But yeah, no, nothing some whiteout can't fix. So if anyone out there knows what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. All right. Good luck, everybody. So moving right along to the upcoming Spaceflight events, we have five events. And uh, yeah, what's the first one, Ben? Okay. So first up, uh, we talked about this last week and maybe even the week before. Uh, it's the first flight of H322 uh, carrying ALOS-3. We've, uh, we've seen this get delayed a good couple of times. <laughs> um, but uh it's now scheduled for wednesday february 15th uh its window is from 0137 hours utc to 0144 hours utc so a good uh like five six seven minutes there and i don't know if this is going to be streaming anywhere uh but i hope it does and if it doesn't it's going to be fun to watch uh the launch replay because uh, new rockets are always cool. <laughs> then after that, on the fifteenth, uh, we have a we have a, another Starlink group, Starlink Group Two Five. So another batch of Starlinks uh, launching on a Falcon Nine Block Five uh, from Vandenberg this time actually. So that's interesting. From Space Launch Complex Four E, the window is um, seventeen forty four through twenty fifty UTC. So that's a pretty good size. Like that's a real launch window there, right? And normally they're more or less instantaneous. Could it be that they're maybe doing, because this is a Vandenberg launch, could it be maybe that they're going to do some like dog legging or something? And like the amount that uh, they dog be, leg yeah. kind of gives them a little wiggle room? They might be doing that, but that would still be factored into yeah. their window. And so- like, I suppose doing to- any dog leg reduces your, reduces your window. So if you're normally going to be flying straight, you know, and you can dog leg to, yeah. get, to get in, that extends your window. But if you're- Starting with a dog leg, no matter what, it's going to shrink your. I know it's it still sounds reasonable. So and next up, we have another Falcon Nine, but this time magically taking something that isn't a Starlink. Um, no, they do a lot of non-Starlink <laughs> launches, but there's just so many, you know. But yeah, so this will be taking uh, Inmarsat Six F two, and so this is uh, one of these uh, communication satellites from uh, the British operator Inmarsat, and uh, specifically, this one will be going uh, to Geo, and. Uh, the Falcon 9 will be launching on Saturday, February 18th with a window from 0358 to 0616 UTC, flying out of the Cape at Slick 40. And then finally, it's uh, Soyuz MS-23. We talked about this earlier. So MS-23 is going to be flying on a Soyuz 21A on Monday, February 20th at 0157 hours UTC. And again, this is the unpiloted Soyuz. Haven't had ah. one of those in ages kind of sucks that we had to break a soyuz to get it but still pretty cool um so you can watch that launch on nasa tv that's uh 8 30 p.m 
Eastern time. Um, it will be rendezvousing and docking with ISS a couple days later on Tuesday, February the 21st. Um, the coverage is going to begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern time, and the docking is scheduled for 9.34 p.m. Eastern time. Okie doke, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, the Greek, Deathkin, Mike, Psykyle, Delta, Chris A.K.A. Stein Garfield and Gopal for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction errors on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.